Welcome to the Beekeeper's Corner Podcast. August 25th, 2022, episode 215, EAS, The Afterglow. Hello everyone, welcome to the Beekeeper's Corner. I'm Kevin England, and I am really happy to get a chance to record this before I head south. I'm going on vacation and just trying to get this one out the door. What a summer this has been. The combination of events has just been non-stop, like staccato, all the way through, and... I'm sitting here at 12.25 a.m. on the day before I leave because I just wanted to record this and make sure I got a recording out and didn't leave everybody hanging. I, I hoped to do this over the weekend, but it wasn't going to work out that way. But I'm so glad you're here. Hey, come on in, settle down, pull up a chair. Welcome to the show. I got a whole bunch of stuff to talk about. I had some stuff prepped. Prior to going to the Eastern Apiculture Society Conference, and this will be a smidge, a pinch, of some EAS stuff, I'm going to cover that over the next bunch of episodes. Um, But I also had some interesting things on the pile to talk about. So why don't I tell you what's going to be in this episode, and I'll leave some of the blah, blah, blah for the closing comments. How's that? Dashboard. Ever hear the advice to crystallize, decrystallize your honey on the dashboard of your car? Is that a good idea? I'm going to talk about that and give you some impressions. Roundtable number two. Engineering is a wonderful thing. We, we just have engineering all around us. And I'm going to give you an example that applies to honey jars and beekeeping. Roundtable number three. There's some do's and don'ts for Formic, but the label is the law. We called into question something that has been practiced here in this region in New Jersey, and the manufacturer basically came back with cease and desist, and I'll tell you what that's all about. Roundtable number four, save the monarchs. Did you know they're endangered? I'm going to talk about a bill that's going through to try and help the United States and how that ties to beekeeping. Round table number five, can we all just get along? Have you heard this thing that's coming up lately about the bees? I know we want to save the bees, but not at the cost of native pollinators. Darn bees, they're just getting all the headlines. We'll talk about how to get along. Roundtable number six, filter follow-up. I said in episode 214 that Sharon was going to be filtering our honey and try a couple of those techniques. I have a report. For topic number one, as I sit here to record this, I don't know. (laughs) I don't have one yet. Somewhere along the line, by the time I put this out, I'll figure out what it's going to be. I do know one thing. I have to come back to the announcement and some of the feedback that came back from EAS about this notion of being treatment-free. I'm, I'm going to tell you right now, I'm changing that idea. I have a different idea, and that'll be topic number one. Low treatment. 
I'll, I'll explain when I get there. A little bit of local hive report to finish the episode, and then I will leave some impressions about EAS and closing comments and a couple other things that are going on. Roundtable number and one, with that, dashboard. Why don't, what, one thing I've heard on numerous occasions, and specifically from roundtable former state one. apiarist Tim Schuler, is a technique for resolving crystallized honey in your automobile. I've shared this recently on the show, that I took a 12-pack of our honey jars, placed it in my vehicle and drove them to work. The hope was that if I left them in my black colored CRV for the day in our work parking lot, would it decrystallize when it was time for the afternoon drive? Quick answer is maybe. The funny thing is one box of the two I tried decrystallized, did okay. The other, not so much. The difference, one had the lid open on the box and the other was closed. Now, it stands to reason that I was trying something. I am cognizant that the heat in the car is actually higher than it needs to be, and I personally want to avoid overheating our honey. Keeping the containers in the cardboard boxes that the bottles are shipped in, that the queen line jars are shipped in, insulates them, I think, somewhat, from the onslaught of heat in the car, which could easily get to 145 degrees, that's 62 degrees Celsius. Kevin moment. I found a temperature calculator where you can enter the exterior temperature and time frame for storing something in your car, and it would project what the inside car temperature would be. At six hours, with an outside temperature of 90 degrees, it said the interior of the car could be 143 degrees Fahrenheit. Now, of course, there are a lot of factors that could cause this number to be off. Tinting of the windows, insulation of the body in the car, the color of the car, the amount of glass, size of the vehicle, interior composition, cloudy day, and so on. Another factor is what your honey storage containers look like that you put inside the vehicle. I'll put a link in the show note to the website that I found. And enough on that. Stick a pin in it. I'll come back to it a little later. End of Kevin moment. In the end, my concern has been that we are overheating our honey with this method. And what I like about the calculator I just mentioned is that most calculators project this for other reasons. Most notably, of course, the impact of don't do this, leaving living beings in a hot interior of a car. In fact, one of the things that spurred this roundtable was a public service announcement seen on a screen at Eastern Apiculture Society conference, which graphically represented the temperature inside of a car if you left your pet for any period of time, even if you have the windows cracked. So putting the calculator to use, what might be an ideal temperature to use if you're trying to decrystallize the honey. Well, there was an EAS presentation by Dr. Leonard Davis where he showed you how to decrystallize your honey in an old refrigerator. His preference for melting the crystal honey, crystallized honey, was to set it in this refrigerator and keep it at a temperature of 110 degrees for five days. This method would remove the crystals while keeping the temperature in line with 
any application of heat that would not ruin the goodness of your honey. Now this keeps in mind that any interior of a hive, I'm talking about honey stored in a hive now, could get to 110 degrees in a natural setting. So if you translate that, it's considered safe for you to heat your honey to this temperature to try and decrystallize it. And it's not going to have any impact to the genuine honey, fresh nutritional honey, because that's how hot it gets inside an actual hive interior. It's not going to wreck the enzymes by overheating it. Now, what this tells me is that the recommendation to place your honey on the dashboard of a car is kind of dubious. If you're concerned about overheating your honey. I suspect that I did not overheat my honey because it was left in the cardboard containers. And it took at least a week in that state for it to decrystallize. Now, no, I didn't have temperature probes inside the box, but my sensibility tells me that each time I checked the honey jars, I'd get in the vehicle, open the back, take a look at what state they were. They, in fact, still had some crystals in them, which meant they weren't taking all that heat because the crystals weren't melting. There's one other consideration, and it's I didn't put the boxes on the dashboard right next to the window. I had them on the floor in the back of the vehicle. And, well, we're all aware that heat rises, and I just don't believe it was 145 degrees at that level, say, up by where the headliner is. In the end, as fussy as this sounds, I think it really is worth following Dr. Davis's advice, if you're going to be in this for the long run, to build some sort of insulated chamber where you can employ a measured amount of heat over a long period of time if you want to decrystallize your honey in a proper way. So this summer experiment of putting honey in the car to see what it's like, I'm just not going to employ this method anymore. I learned something and not because it didn't work, but because for my type A personality, the uncontrolled nature of applying temperature over time in the risk that it's overheating the honey that eventually I want to offer for sale doesn't work for me. Uh, I stick to the sous vide and some of the other methods that I have. I suppose that in a pinch I would never say never, but I don't believe that I'm going to consider this as a standard practice, you know, housing honey passively in a vehicle during the summer to try and melt the crystals away. Especially now that I have a better understanding of how hot a vehicle can get, when considering the ambient temperature applied over time based on the calculator that I was telling you about earlier. I'll have a link to Inside Car Temperature Calculator. And honestly, everything on the web you have to believe, right? It's true. I don't know if this is an accurate thing. But in a roundabout sense, the funny thing is I took a photograph of the public service announcement about how hot it gets inside the vehicle. Some of the temperatures matched up. So I, I would have think that thermo science at this point is fairly standard and straightforward. So you get a pretty good gauge on the inside car temperature calculator that I don't know if you would take it to the bank, trust it, but good enough is perfect. All right, I killed the ending on that. Let's go to the next roundtable.
Round table number two, I call this one neck finishes. There are things in this life that we take for granted. And this one might be a good candidate for an episode of 99% Invisible, the podcast that always finds a way for us to understand and appreciate the engineering in our lives. Open the door to your refrigerator and look inside. There, you will find nestled in between the mustard and a jar of mayonnaise, a glass container with something in it, let's say they're pickles. On top of that jar is the lid, and, you know, a lid is a lid, but if you stop to think about that common jar of pickles, there's an underlying wonder in the lid and jar design. It has to do with the size, type, construction, and fitting of the lid. To illustrate the point further, consider your requirements in the jar, lid, design. You want it to keep your pickles fresh. You want it to be easy to take off. You want it to keep from spilling pungent pickle juice all over the counter if you happen to knock the jar sideways. And all of these performance aspects of a jar lid taken for granted until you have the pickle juice running off the counter edge and onto your floor. What am I getting at? If you stop to think of it for a moment, there's a design aspect that makes that lid perform. And now turning this to beekeeping, the same rings true for honey jar lids. When purchasing honey jars, there sure are plenty of choices. If you stop to think of some of the common requirements for a honey jar, let's take an obvious one. You want to scoop the honey out. Then you'll want a jar with a neck size big enough to accommodate the spoon, tablespoon. Turning to the engineering aspects that we take for granted, have you ever heard of a 38400? Do you know of the T, E, I, S, and H dimensions when it comes to neck measurements? Of course not, unless you've ever decided to shop for honeybee jars and their corresponding lids. I would venture that most of us pedestrian beekeeper folks, myself included, pop over to a bee catalog, choose a jar lid combo for our shopping cart, and we just move along. However, if you stop to examine it for a moment, there's a lot of inherent engineering going on in the background. I want to spend a moment overviewing a few of the characteristics that are interesting to explore coming back to that 38400 notion. This is what it means. A jar lid combination has a handshake on how they made up. They are designed to work in harmony. And that means of course, that at a fundamental level, they fit loosely. The number 38 in the combination refers to the diameter in millimeters across the inside of the cap, the 400 identifier is the thread style established by both the glass packing institute and the plastic industry which of course needs to coalesce with glass for plastic bottles and lids as you might imagine there are other values that factor into the mix as mentioned the aforementioned t e i s and h dimensions represent the width of such things as the depth of the neck, 
for the lid to sit down upon, the diameter of the jar thread thickness, the inner diameter of the jar, and other critical and crucial measures. All of these things are standardized, and the end result is a jar that fits and holds per the design. Some designs lock, some apply extra torque, which might hold the plastic threads tighter so the liquid doesn't escape. Some even express whether the lid tightens down like a nut and a bolt, or whether the design calls for it to fasten and it simply just slips around closed. Now that you know all this, find a jar and take a moment to look at the threads. The angle of the slope, the design of where they start in a simple row or a series of row, all plays into that twist of the lid upon fixing it on the jar. Is it one turn? Is it three turns? Is it hard to turn? Or is it a simple smooth flow? All of that is factored into the design of the jar and the lid combos you choose. Now a 400 style is the style designator for a one thread turn. You can compare and contrast that against a 410 style glass jar, which is one and a half turn thread. A 415 is two turns to lock the thread. And then there's a 430 designator that provides more torque leading to a better seal and well, so on. You get it. To my knowledge, a customary queen line style honey jar employs a 58 millimeter neck and a 400 style enclosure. Now some prefer the queen line jar to say a gamber jar. I'm making this all up illustratively by the way, because the neck is a full 10 millimeters wider. What makes this an interesting of note, say for a honey producer, now consider you're a small packer producer, which maybe you sell your honey, is that you could purchase smaller containers, bigger containers, and you can get the lid side to match. And now you know how. Perhaps you want to have one ounce samplers in a glass jar. If you're using the 4840, sorry, if you're using the 48400 Gamber glass bottles, then you know you're going to buy a 48400 straight sided one ounce jar and all your lids will be interchangeable. You won't have to have little lids for the little bottles and big lids for the big ones. Now, before I get your hopes up too high, it's important to realize that size does matter and unfortunately, <laughs> the glass jars that you buy, they're all different when you go from bigger to smaller and so on. If you want to have certain kinds of jars. So there's a website that sells glassware called Fillmore. I know of that because people I know use it. A half pound queen line jar referencing the Fillmore container website is a 48400. A pound queen line jar is a 58,400. A two pound is 63,400. And so if you were going to have half pound, one pound, and two pound of queen line jars, you would need to have three separate kind of lids. Now you could decide to go another route, let's say a round jar with straight sides. Theoretically, the neck design 
is the same. The only difference is the jar, like a drink glass, could be taller or shorter. It doesn't bode well for traditional honey jar shapes that most people buy, Queenland and Gamber. But pragmatically, if you want to use all the same lids and also a similar style labeling, you could buy the same style glass with the same top. How about that? I guess that's enough on this topic, but I found it intriguing to consider this and it comes up in everyday life when you're trying to do what we do sometimes, reuse old containers in your kitchen to try and fit a lid. I think from now on, when I find an incompatibility, I will immediately recognize that, you know, this is a 400 lid trying to be used on a 415. At least I hope I retain that smartness. I will have some links to some resources in the show notes for this. Or, you know, just go to the website that I talked about for that particular brand and look at the jar next and you'll see that they all have the references of the millimeters and style. That's kind of cool. Fillmore. F-I-L-L-M-O-R is the glass packer. If you look it up, you'll find it. Roundtable number three, Formic Myths. Over the years, there's been some supporting information that we have shared with beekeepers when doing training about how to apply Formic Pro and previously Mite Away Quick Strips. Our former state apiarist Tim Schuler had said on numerous occasions, I kind of have him on video talking about this, regarding the use of Mite Away Quick Strips and presumably Formic Pro, I think, that he had some instructions he shared about how to handle the product when the temperatures especially were warm. The Northwest Branch was looking for some instructions to give to beekeepers when it came to summer practices, given we're in the heat of summer. And two of the tips that we commonly had referred came up for scrutiny, and they are not from Nod, the producers of Formic Pro and Mightaway Quick Strips. And so I have to say, the label is the law. And rightfully, one of our beekeepers said, I don't know if we should include these tips that didn't come from Nod. So before I share these tips, I will tell you that. What do you do when you get in this situation? You contact Nod <laughs> and ask them if they support these practices and... I will say that when I sent the note, they, to paraphrase, no, don't do it. They also provide a little context as to why not, which I'll talk about in a second. So in order for you to understand what the heck I'm talking about, let me say what these tips were as we understood them. The first is you can refrigerate or freeze the strips. Formic Pro strips prior to placing them over the colonies on hot days. And the second one was you should deploy the strips in the late afternoon going into evening as it is likely that they're the coolest uh, hours of the day and it will only get cooler on the overnight. Now, logic wise, here's the backstories to those recommendations. The first tip had to do with slowing down the release. 
In the Mayaway quickstrip days, some colonies were, for lack of a better description, gassed by the outgassing of the active ingredient. And even if you followed the instructions for giving space, opening entrances, extra box, and so on, the label is the law, the product still was quite potent and beekeeper saw impacts. Dead queens, brood mortality, and on very rare, rare occasions, the hive might even abscond. Now the logic to the at guidance and advice was, if the strips were cool, they would warm up a bit slower in the heat and therefore release the product just a touch slower, especially if the temperatures outside were in the higher range of the okay based on the product label. So that's the logic of advice number one. And then the second tip I think is common sense Given temperature was a focus, there was a secondary measure to apply the product in the coolest part of the day. And if the temps are lower in the late afternoons and go lower in the early evenings, customarily it's going to drop on the overnight, then it stands to reason that this would also aid in avoiding that burst release of the potentially harmful product reaction that would do harm to your colony. And the thing is, it would still release the active ingredient through the overnight. And in the morning when it started to heat up, most of it would be out and dissipated and you would have less risk of gassing your colonies. Now, given label is the law and some discussion was going on amongst our board members, which is a good call from Gene Miller, who's the one who actually called it into question. I jotted off a note to nod and asked them if they would review the practice and tell us if it was supported. Because, you know, on paper it seems logical. But if you read their website, and that's what I did, there's nothing in the FAQs and the label that suggests either one. Nothing's even hinted at these guidance tips that have been repeated over and over again in our region. Nod Sales Coordinator Dana Brown wrote back, and indicated that there's no data to support that this is a good practice. She's, I, I don't want to put words in her mouth, but I will tell you what she said to me or how I inferred it. And then, yeah, just bear with me for a second. She suggested that it might possibly be to the contrary, and that requires a little bit of unpacking. And I hope that Dana doesn't mind me quoting the response. But I want to represent this properly, and this is what was shared when commenting on the cooling or freezing of the product. Quote, in fact, it might have the opposite effect in efficacy during the first few days, as it might take longer for the formic acid vapors to release, and in parentheses, although this has not been tested, end quote. She went on further with that statement to say, quote, if the temperatures are above the acceptable treatment range, which is 50 degrees Fahrenheit to 85 degrees Fahrenheit, that would be considered off-label use and we cannot support practices outside of the testing parameters NOD apiary products has conducted or the EPA has accepted, in parentheses, assuming you're in the USA, end quote. 
Now, there was a short statement to point number two, quote, Formic Pro should be applied during the day when the bees are active and foraging, end quote. You know, like a Boy Scout, I'm good at following directions. For argument's sake, I could debate or analyze any of these points. But when the company that makes it gives you direction, and the EPA has set up the test by which they had to submit and write the instructions and reviewed all that stuff, it really only seems practical to follow it and discontinue these lore-style recommendations. Now, coming back to the other premise, and a very good point. This company was instructed by the government and conducted their application for these products in a prescribed manner. They're not going to tell you to try things that are not in line with how they tested for their application. It always comes back to the label is the law. And if there were a need for those things, those practices to be done, you have to assume they would be in the instructions. So now we know. And thanks to Dana and the Nod Company for a quick reply on the inquiry. And good on Gene Miller for calling that out to say the label is the law. We should check. Uh, very proper read on that. Roundtable number four, Monarchs. This is a story about recovering America's Wildlife Act. I'll tell you what that is in a second. Now, this is not necessarily bee-related, but as they say in this world, we are all connected. And while walking the grounds of EAS, one of the conversations I had was in recognition that somebody talking about monarch butterflies have been deemed endangered. Now, the conversation that morning from the beekeepers present while walking from here to there is that this is a bellwether moment. And, you know, there's likely very few of us that can not recall seeing monarchs flitting about the landscape in our lifetime. It's just a thing. You know, so many people tell me when I was a kid, I used to see bees all over the place. I'd never see them now. Well, the same could be said sentiment-wise for monarchs. They're just not as prevalent. It's funny because for me personally, we were just having a conversation, Sharon and I, about the lack of monarchs present in our yard just a week or so ago. Now, I want to parlay that to a notion that the U.S. government is in the throes of sponsoring legislation that will provide for wildlife conservation dollars. As it is in government, legislation comes and legislation goes, but this particular one is notable for the sheer scope of the commitment. To put this bill in perspective, it is, quote, the biggest piece of legislation for wildlife since the Endangered Species Act of 1973, end quote. In an article of which I'll have a link, of course, in the show notes, there's a reasonable assessment of the scope, the breadth, and logic behind the government's planned investment in wildlife to the tune of $14 billion over the next decade. Now, coming back to the notion we are all connected, I will make the leap that the conversation of plants and wildlife, as it relates to what this bill can do for them, 
will have an impact on the forage and fauna that even our bees will take advantage of and native pollinators and what they need so desperately. Hopefully somewhere in that 14 billion to improve the probability that monarchs and other things are in trouble, they will deal with restoring habitat and forage and other things that are wantingly wrong. Proponents of this are confident that it's going to make it through. It seems like it has bipartisan support. And who knows, this might be one of those legislative activities that each politician wants to have on their record of resume when looking at what goes on for the good measures that they support. A short little side before I close this out is, of course, there's plenty of money that goes into wildlife and, you know, agencies that, that work in that space. But what they're saying is it's a bit misguided. What do a lot of the funds go to? How to support the hunters, how to stock the trout, how to do things like that. Wildlife conservation ends up being for the naturalists who want to go out and do hunting and fishing and other things and not so much for what does that actually mean to the ecosystem. Some of the proponents of this are saying that this is a different approach, that wildlife conservation, yeah, they'll still be funding for the traditional way that wildlife conservation has manifested. That's not going away. But this is in addition to places that really could use a boost in proper wildlife conservation by conserving the land and other features that would benefit the ecosystem. So hopefully that point comes true when, you know, they, they do the honest assessment of whether they're going to improve this or not. The link in the show notes is Congress is set to pass a huge wildlife conservation bill with bipartisan support. Roundtable number five, getting along. As a beekeeper, it's likely that in your future, someone will ask you a question that's rather hard to quantify an answer for. To my way of thinking, the honeybee allure, like anything else that is held up, leads to being one of those things that's automatically reviewed in the context of something cannot be that good. So let's look at the flaws for this thing that is held in high regard. It's just too much of a good thing to save the bees, right? Kevin moment, such a human thing to do. <laughs> to look at something good and examine it for ways to exploit or expose its flaws. There are often better things to do in life than this, but alas, humans are humans, end of Kevin moment. So honeybees, you know, they're bad for the environment. We beekeepers are bullies because we're trying to save the planet and our fool's errand of placing our hives in direct competition of native pollinators. We are just pillaging the neighborhoods with our onslaughts. Therein lies the rub. While most do not concern themselves with such notions, this idea that honeybees are being oversold is out there and, quite frankly, is becoming a swelling concern in some parts. And even in the public perception, there's a problem because honeybees are getting all the attention 
and some have been saying that this is short-sighted and not the right way to go. The fact is, yeah, sure, it's true. <laughs> there are likely cases where this occurs, where honeybees are overpopulated in the area and do negatively impact the space they occupy. And the same can be said where any form of livestock is kept in a space where they were not originally and now they're kept in some form of abundance that is not natural and impacts the environment around it. Now being pragmatic and recognizing that this occurs, the first good step for us is as beekeepers, we have to recognize that if there's competition for forage and we beekeepers keep bringing hives into an ecosystem, what are we doing to the landscape? We may potentially inadvertently be doing a bad thing. But as beekeepers, are we creating massive problems, moderate problems, incidental problems? How are you to know as an individual? Maybe some knowledge about what happens when you put bees somewhere is the place to start. So at EAS, we saw a talk on this subject by two grad students working under Scott McArt, an assistant professor of pollinator health from the DICE lab for honeybee studies at the Cornell University in Ithaca. I think, actually by the schedule, we were there to see McCart. He was the one that was supposed to present. But something changed, maybe? I don't know. But there was a tag team approach offered instead, where Dr. Maureen Page, a postdoctoral scholar, and Caitlin Dutz, I don't know how to say the name, so sorry, Caitlin, a PhD student, they ran down the information. Uh, hold on a minute. That, that's shame on me. Deutsche. I think that's how you say the name. It's D-E-U-T-S-H. I had to look it up to say it because I, I know I killed it and that's just not fair. <laughs> Hopefully I said it right that time. Okay. Given this is a round table, not a topic, I'm going to sum up the key points. And my hope is that you will be able to have a sense of a takeaway when it comes to how to learn how to tackle this complicated question should you ever encounter it. So for me, that talk, there were two takeaways. The first, bees and native pollinators have different needs and different motivations. And two, bees and native pollinators both compete and differentiate when it comes to food sources. Now, that requires us to unpack that a little bit. The first inference is to the nature of honeybees in contrast to other pollinators. It mostly has to do with their goals and lifestyles. Honeybees, as we know, are eusocial, and they're looking to establish colony dynamics driven by reproduction of the colony, which includes a strategy of perpetual occupation of the space, and more importantly, for this consideration, overwintering. Said a different way, honeybees are concerned about rearing young and therefore they're going to compete for pollen sources, but when it comes to foraging attention, nectar is a key component. And to sum this up, they have quite a focus on nectar gathering. 
As to native pollinators, they live a different life. They're smaller in numbers, they don't overwinter on a cluster, and much of their energy is spent in rearing bees during the season, which naturally inclines them to want pollen. And therefore, there is a far less focus on nectar. The net-net is honeybees spend a lot of energy on nectar. Native bees are pollen-driven. That means some of the competition just isn't there. Now to the second point. If one considers what pollinators forage on, whether it be honeybees or other pollinators, they like different things. Some like things that are this, while others like things that are that. And given the preferences, that means there's no competition. Now, there are, of course, like a Venn diagram, a niche overlap where various pollinators go to the same plant and therefore there could be a bias when one species inundates the area and outcompetes the other. And if we bring in too many honeybees to one specific location, they shut out any competing pollinators. This is an area where a plethora of honeybees wrought by humans it's called causing consternation. So the question lies, are honeybees in the overlap niche space wreaking havoc? Well, actually the answer is maybe. <laughs> All things have to be taken in context. It's clear that the conditions are favorable in some situations for honeybees to overwhelm. And it's evident that there are cases where there is competition, but the balance, it's kind of a fine line. And sometimes there's no detriment in play. There's plenty for everybody. Now, of course, there's no perfect answer to this. It's a cloudy issue. and You would have to examine, to get the right answer, the landscape at hand and analyze if any particular location is being impacted or not. Every situation has a different set of inputs that you have to do the math on and do the equation. This podcast caters to backyard beekeepers. If you are a two-in-the-yard beekeeper, just move along. By my way of thinking, there are simply not enough colonies in your yard to have a material impact on your neighborhood. There just aren't. Even if you had neighbors nearby hosting hives, like every single neighbor down the row on your street, which you don't, had multiple hives, there's probably still reasonable amount of forage in the vicinity if your entire community is not saturated with hives for them not to outcompete native resources. Uh, yeah, that one's debatable, of course, but you know, there's more than enough in typical scenarios by the sheer volume of land available to colonies, there's more than enough forage to go around. Now to go the other direction, if a commercial team plops down pallets of bees in a field with millions of bees in a single spot, they are really likely causing the recipe to overwhelm. In the EAS talk, a few novel things arose that weighed into the equation and variations abound. One of them is new to me. First, there are variations of plant availability over the seasons. We're all aware of that. 
but a variation factor that has to be considered is something I never heard of. The pressure comes when dearths occur or said differently, when plants are not as abundant and everyone's trying to get by by using the same resources or specific plants are available in the ecosystem right where you are that do or do not perform based on the pressures of pollinators trying to get to them. There's an aspect of this that's interesting called plant replenishment. This is new, for me at least. It's an interesting dynamic I'd never consider. One characteristic of a plant is how soon it returns to offering resources to the bees after it's been harvested by visitor pollinators. We learned in the talk that different plants replenish at different rates. Never considered this. And the researchers were asked by the audience in the Q&A afterwards if there was some sort of matrix for us to understand what plants exceeded at this thing. They give out all their nectar and in two-hour turnaround, made that time up. They're ready to go again. I think the reply was, while we understand this dynamic, the information about what plants do what and whatever is not well understood. And if I just look at what's going on here in New Jersey, we haven't had rain. For a plant to replenish nectar, it probably needs rain to come up through the plant so that it can rebuild. And everything being dry, even a replenishing plant that replenishes every hours or once a day or whatever the time frame happens to be, is probably not performing at peak performance kind of thing. Isn't this such an interesting topic? One, you know, we talk about plants and whatever a lot of times in beekeeping, but this is a new kind of area to explore. And to that end, there are resources out there that I was unaware of. And the last piece that came out in this talk is there's this premise in the world of protected habitats and mandates. In the case for New York State, they didn't talk about this, but I went and looked it up afterwards because it got raised. There's a guide that has instructions about the responsible placement of apiaries so they do not compete with conservation mandates. Again, something new to me. It wonders if New Jersey, because I saw it for New York, has this. Never heard of it. To express what this means, there was an interactive map at nypad.org that presents information about areas of land that is protected for various purposes. I, I have to share this. <laughs> Sitting here recording this, just trying to remember all the stuff that I talked about. And this giant fly just landed on my forehead. Like, what the, where did this thing come from? Uh, how about that? It's like the penultimate Kevin moment. <laughs> Shoot it away. I'm sitting here and it landed on my screen and I'm staring at it while I um, watch the recording get recorded. Okay, what was I talking about? Oh, <laughs> The purposes, the, the protected things, the, the types. Let me think about it. It's watersheds and conservation easements and, you know, wildlife refuges and 
refugees. <laughs> refugees. There's no refugees involved. And so on, right? You know, the funny thing is, this ties back to that wildlife management thing. I just, the bill I just spoke about, right? This is, this is the type of thing that New York State is trying to protect. And here, it's in a different context. For me, this talk was an interesting introduction to the topic. And my takeaway, we as beekeepers need to consider one of the golden tenets of beekeeper. Dang fly, get the heck out of here. We are choosing to introduce a colony, more likely colonies, to a place where they are not. Feral colonies occupying the space in our neighborhood too. And we have an obligation to consider the impacts of our actions, especially if we're saturating the space. Now, in the end, the summation of the talk was, Bees and native pollinators can live in harmony. But if we beekeepers are tipping the balance too much, we're being bullies. So take a moment, consider your personal situation, do a little bit of math. Hopefully, you're not overburdening the area with so many honeybees that they're like a plague of locusts and they're just not helpful to all the native pollinators you know, and we're not saving the bees, including pollinators. It's an interesting to leave you with that thought to think about that. And you have to say thanks to the Cornell Dice Lab for honeybee studies for the continued work on the subject. Do take a moment to read the show notes. It does a far more comprehensive job at presenting evidence to the conversation. I'll have a link to when do honeybees compete with native wild bees in this episode. Roundtable number six, filter follow-up. In episode 214, I spoke of some alternatives for filtering honey. The answer is, in case you're wondering, hops spider filter. That's the answer. Write it down, hops spider filter. This contraption is made for the purpose of brewing and a hops filter seems to be the perfect device for the tactics spoken in the episode. To describe it, a hops spider filter, it's a large cylinder-shaped device with two fabricated arms built into the top for the purpose of hanging the hops spider filter on the side of a pot. <laughs> Stop doing or in our case, a honey bucket. If you search for this hops spider filter or strainer on the web, you'll see that they come in all shapes and sizes, but most of them are tall cylinders that of course, they're designed to go in a brewing pot. As such, they may or may not fit into the customary five gallon buckets that we use for honey harvesting. If you're gonna purchase one, you should review the dimensions and there are some that are suitable to sit inside of a honey bucket, which is about, and I looked this up, 10 and a half inches across the bottom and a little over 14 inches high. Most of the hop spider filters that I saw for sale offer a 300 micron filter. 
which seems to be a finer mesh than many of the double filter systems you see in the B catalogs. And there's a thing that I should say as an aside is, I also saw filters that were not tall cylinders like a tube. They were bucket shaped. Picture a pot you would make spaghetti in, for example, but with all mesh sides. I'm not sure what the deal is with pricing for that particular form factor, but they were all north of $100 on average. And I don't know about you, but that seems a little too pricey to go in that direction. When we go to harvest honey next time, we'll have one of these to try. The cost is around 30 bucks, And I also wanted to report from that episode, we were just about to harvest honey that Sharon said, nay, nay, no, on the cheesecloth covering over the bucket strainers. If we recall that the tactic was to place a layer of cheesecloth over the filter, and then when it became clogged of wax, you'd peel it off. Just peel it off and put another one on there in its place thereby keeping the stainless steel mesh clean, which is darn pain to clean. Didn't work. Sharon said, as soon as the honey hit the thing, it didn't flow through it. Now, I wonder if maybe you needed to dip the filter in honey so it was saturated. You know how that works? Sometimes dry products keep something from filtering through. But she said it clogged right away. The honey didn't filter through it. And she just jettisoned it right off the bat. It's kind of like, how many licks does it take to get to it? It's a roll pop. <laughs> the world will never know. <laughs> you know, and sometimes she's not the most patient person in the world. She admitted that she might have not given it its proper due. But I trust her instinct. And if she said it was a bad idea, then it was probably a bad idea in the first place. So I'll have a link to the Hops Spider Strainer Basket Filter 304 Stainless Steel 300 Micron Mesh 6x14 device that I put in the cart for Santa to buy us at Christmas time in Amazon. If you want to see what I'm talking about. It's a good one. Topic number one, this is revisit of Treatment Free Beekeeper. If you didn't listen to the previous episode, called Leap of Faith. One of the things I talked about is my intention to venture to the path of treatment-free. And yeah, blah, 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 and blathered on about that. But I really wanted everybody to understand the logic behind the decision, some of the rationale and such. And of course, I released that episode prior to going to EAS. And I really did wonder whether the experiment of somebody listening on the way there would take place. The answer is, yeah. <laughs> Actually, quite a few people stopped me and said they knew about the announcement and other things. And that was on Monday of the start of the conference. People physically listened to it on the way there. So I'll put that one in the notes. And next year before going to EAS, I'll make sure I get you folks an episode out so you can listen to it on the way there. I thought that was kind of a cool little experiment. Treatment-free, no. I, I, you know, after hearing people's feedback and also discussing some of this on the ride up there with Bob Kloss, 
I want to, how do you say this, reel back some of the things that I talked about and, and maybe after thinking it through, because that was a kind of spur of the moment disclosure, uh, say I'm open to my options. There's something about calling yourself a treatment beekeeper, a treatment-free beekeeper, a natural beekeeper, or any of these other things that automatically pigeonhole you to being, you have to follow these rules. I live my life by a hybrid approach. I'm a data-driven person. I'm a biology-driven person when it comes to beekeeping. At least that's what I profess and try to be. I understand the biology of the bees and I try to do what they want to do. And I keep coming back to the notion of, I like the idea that Megan Milbreath came up with in the context of how to go treatment free while not ignoring treatments where they're required. Towards treatment free is what she called it. If I think about something Really, the reason I'm doing this, the approach to forego treatments, it's not about becoming treatment-free. It's about determining whether or not you can stay ahead of the game, stay ahead of the curve. I didn't say win. I said stay ahead of the curve, just to be clear. In the context of keeping bees and not losing your investments while doing good by the bees, right? Of course, because it's all about the bees in that context. Um, hmm. So one of the things, a dynamic that came up during the week and conversations going to EAS, coming home from EAS, when you have a lot more time to talk about bees, because that's what you do when you're there is that my objective is to determine whether or not the work that we've done to rear queens for quality stock is going to provide any measurable benefit. Bees will survive whether they have mites or not. Two things are clear. One, I heard it loud and clear, and I didn't really mean this. I, I'm not... I'm talking about monitoring for mites. It was very clear to me that people want me to do an experiment. They want me to become Randy Oliver. I'm not really that kind of guy. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to, well, I just said I'm data-driven approach. I work for a living. I, I don't have time to go monitor 20 hives, determine what the mite thresholds are, and monitor and monitor and monitor. It's just too much work. I'm, I'm actually trying to avoid work, not create more work for myself. I'll have you know, and you'll hear this in the local hive report, that I monitored my hives this week. In hearing what people had to say, I think it's an important thing to just know, not by sight, not by personal acumen of looking at brood and seeing whether you have bad brood or deformed wing virus on the bees and such, that the mite thresholds were X and Y. If anything, what Bob and I discussed on the ride home is, if you don't monitor for mites, then you don't know which colonies actually made it through and kicked the butts of the mites 
because they had tons and tons of mites and they just didn't care. They dealt with it. So to my way of thinking, that's a data point I need. I do need to monitor the colonies, understand what their mite thresholds are. And if they make it through and I'm standing there looking at this one had 2%, this one had 6% and the 6% went, made it through and boy, look at them coming out of spring. They look great. I think I ought to breed from that one. It's a data point. I guess the question is, given the lifestyle, whether I'll be able to actually monitor the colonies by going in and taking mite measurements. I'm trying. Um, you know, look, I'm going on vacation, so I'll get to it when I get back. Uh, the funny thing about it is, let's just talk about life. You know, you have a plan to work bees on a Sunday. That's my window. My life is planned by this window I'm doing that particular activity. And then you get a phone call and somebody says, boy, I could really use a visit for a mentor thing. And you swap your plan. You don't, you don't take care of your own bees. You go and you do a mentor visit because you have obligations. That's the way life works. I'm not retired. I work for a living. So, okay, putting that away, here's the deal. I'm giving this a new name. It's, a, it's an awful name, and I did it on purpose. I'm going to call it the low treatment method. You ever hear of that? No, of course you haven't, because it doesn't exist. I made it up. <laughs> low treatment. That's Kevin's approach. Don't go quote that there's a low treatment method. Just know that I'm not doing treatment-free, and I'm not doing treatment, and I'm not doing biodynamic and natural. I'm making this up. And ultimately... I'm doing what a lot of people are doing, which is trying to source good stock and seeing if it works. The low treatment aspect is in this notion. I decided that I'm going to treat. Selectively, I'm going to treat. Let me give you a, a rationale. This winter, when there's no brood, I'm going to do an oxalic acid vaporization. Why am I doing that? Because when the bees are on the cluster and there's no brood in the colony, I could zap all the mites. I want my colony to be clean in spring for when they make all the drones and send them out to the neighborhood to mate with all the bees in the neighborhood. If you work so hard to do the breeding of bees that they have good hygiene and live and have four-year-old queens and things like that. The primary way to spread the wealth is through the drones. You need the drones to be healthy. If the drones are compromised in the spring because they came through with a varroa mite load and they're vectoring viruses in the colony and such, that's no good. So I'm going to treat. That's an idea that I came up with. That's the low treatment method because it's not the no treatment method or treatment free, right? So, yeah, I'm going to make this up as I go. Uh, ultimately, though, I'll find out over winter and then through breeding next year how these bees do and over the next couple of years, if it lasts that long, we'll see how this works out. Um, so I guess the takeaway for anybody that 
wants to know what the heck is going on. It's going to evolve. Uh, I'm ever thinking about this. The de declaration to take action was something new for me, and uh, I didn't quite have it all figured out, but now I put myself out there, and I don't know, maybe the next episode I'll tell you some other twist of fate that will change this, but for the time being, I'm not treating. So, I will talk about what I see so far in the local hive report coming up. In fact, since you heard me say in the outro, intro, I have no topics prepared, I'll just leave it at this. Let's go ahead and do the local hive report. Local hive report. There are 20 colonies in various boxes around the property and in the out yard where I have bees at Valley Crest. And so far, everything looks really pretty darn good. Uh, what's strange to me, if I just randomly think about things, I look at the front entrances of the hive. I could kind of tell what's coming and going. We've been without rain for over a month. I think physically there's been three weeks without rain and the rain that we got three weeks ago was nominal at best. There's been no measurable rain. Now this past week, Monday, it rained one inch here first time, which is unusual because in my sim racing life, I talk to a lot of people from all over the country. Some of them are like, hey, it's raining again. They feel like Noah's Ark. We're not having that in New Jersey. Uh, it was nice to see rain the other day, and it actually greened the grass up, which I didn't think was possible with one rain. But hopefully this will result in some of our fall forage coming to fruition. And I'm starting to see the goldenrod come. We know that goldenrod comes out, and then it takes a little while for the plant to open up. And it's just about that period, so the rain comes at a reasonable time to hopefully... Uh, get those plants functional. I walked around in the local fields and I did not see the bees work in our goldenrod yet. So there's that. What I also see when I open up the colonies is I see some nectar storage, but I don't see anything meaningful to show that there's a nectar flow going on right now in the middle of August. Pad number four is a six-frame polystyrene box. I thought, looking at the entrance, that something was wrong with the colony. It's the first one I wanted to do an inspection. When I look at the entrance and something seems off, that's the first colony I go dig into. It had six frames, wall-to-wall, -wall, of bees. Two of the frames had carpets of brood. In fact, I am flat out of any drawn comb and I don't even know if I have any frames to put foundation in. I have to fabricate frames. I'm out. I had talked to my twin brother Keith, who just pulled apart a hive that didn't make it through when he put a swarm in it, and said, do you have any comb for me? So I could put another six frame on this box because they're bursting at the seams. But the funny thing is, there's nothing going on at the entrance. There's no bees coming or going. I don't know that I've ever encountered that kind of thing. They just seem calm and quiet and they're in there doing their thing. 
anywhere there's the opportunity for nectar storage, there's space. But compared to the flight pattern of all the other ones, maybe they just realize there's no other room for anything. So everybody just hang on and wait a while for something to go on. As the mite counts, I went in the colony on pad number one. There were four mites in the sample. I went into the colony in pad number eight. There were six mites in the sample. Threshold wise, they're okay to me. I ran out of time, didn't get a chance to do any more, but when I come back from vacation, one of the first things I'm gonna do is go pick a couple more colonies. I figure I'll sample anywhere from five to 10 of them just to get a sense. Now looking at the physical brood patterns, everything looks great. When you have colonies that are sick with Varroa infestations, you tend to see some European fowl brood and some other funky things going on. Pearly white, swimming in royal jelly, consistent patterns from egg out to larva to capped, brood in all stages. Carpets of brood on several of the frames. That's a surprise to me. With all the dirt that we've had, the queens are still laying like crazy. I saw one bee in the multiple hives that I went through that had deformed wing. One physical bee. Otherwise, all of the colonies are fully built out, have really nice comb, good populations, good stores. Everything looks good. There are two that I'll talk about that have what I would expect to be less than what I've anticipated. Pad number 11 is a eight frame polystyrene hive. It's a box of eight over eight over eight. It came out of spring in an eight over eight full. That means this, the 16 frames in that box were full. In the top deep, when it was two over, when it was an eight over eight, I pulled the outside frames and I put them in a new box on top and I filled the boxes out with foundation frames. They built out all the foundation frames in the second box. They kind of built out all the frames in the third box, but they really are not going to town up there. Now I have a decision to make. I'd really probably not be well served to put that box into winter. And again, I need some drawn comb for them to store things in and I could feed them and have them be an eight over eight over eight. Or I could take that box off, harvest the frames out for something else. I would have thought, and this is my final impression, that they would have built that third box by now. They had all season to do it. They didn't quite do it. That's a little bit of a ring the bell to me, but at the end of the day, it's not the end of the world. I harvested honey off of the box on pad number eight. And they had so many bees in that box from floor to ceiling that if I didn't leave a honey box on them, they would have probably absconded because they just had too many bees in the box. I put a honey box on there and I put four frames drawn and four frames, five frames, because it's a honey box, nine frames in it, a foundation. 
They didn't touch the foundation. One frame had a patch about the size of a baseball started. I would have thought that the dense population, especially with carpets of brood and new bees coming out, that they would have been able to draw wax. But my sense is, and again, this is just thinking about things, given how dry it was in the entire month of July or August, they probably needed nectar and other resources in order to draw all that comb. And they just didn't have it because of the dearth. There's probably 25 other reasons that they did or didn't do that. That's the one that I came up with. Am I right? Maybe. I don't know. But the end of it is that box didn't get drawn. Now, I just gave a presentation to the managementering program about overwintering. And my preference is that you use two deeps and get your honey boxes off. So in this case, no harm, no foul. Eventually the bees will contract as the population gets smaller going towards fall. And I'll just pull that honey box off and put it in the garage. As far as all the colonies are doing, everything looks okay. Uh, every box that I looked in, like I said, is fully built out. I looked at the ones over by the satellite area and they're good. Not been into the Valley Crest ones, but Bob told me he peeked in them and they look good. One of the things we talked about this week was going at the Valley Crest and putting honey supers on. I'm going to talk about that decision. We didn't do it. I don't think, given the dirt that we had, that they would have gotten a fall flow there. And I didn't want to be saddled with taking honey boxes out for three colonies, putting them on there, only to have to come bring them home later, partially filled in whatever they were going to have happen to them. I either wanted them fully drawn with goldenrod honey, or I didn't want to bother with the endeavor. And so I skipped it, didn't do it. As a beekeeper, you learn over years of experience to make these decisions. And maybe it's the wrong decision and I'm going to miss out on a honey crop. But the other thing to say is, you heard me say Sharon harvested our honey. We had 200 plus pounds out of the colonies that we had. And that's pretty darn good. So I'm, you know, and that's leaving a lot of honey on. You know, we didn't take the honey off the bees. We only took the excess. So I don't have a ton of feeding to do this fall. What I do have to monitor is... I believe in the next couple of weeks, they'll probably consume down some of their stores. And when I get back from vacation, I'll have to put some feeders on and top them off. I want to make sure, and this should be every beekeeper's objective, that every colony is fat and happy going into winter. I have no, no use for any uh, notions or ideas that I need to check my bees in winter to make sure that they have anything they need to eat. It, it's just a unfathomable notion for me to have any idea that I need to consider whether the bees are gonna starve or not over winter. I just, there's no reason for that to, to even be a thought. You should cruise right through winter and at least early spring having the notion that you have so much honey on the hives that 
there's no reason to believe that they could even eat as much as that to, yeah, you get it, right? So local hive report, everything's doing great. Uh, the worst thing that's happened this season is all oh, my grass died. <laughs> Spent all that money and energy planting the grass in the apiary and it's a brown dirt floor. It's awful. I don't know. It's very frustrating too. Have you ever done that? Plant grass and then watch it just subsequently wither and die. It's, it's soul crushing. <laughs> Uh, there's always next year to try and grow the grass. And that's the way you got to think of it, right? Glass half full. If it, if it didn't rain this year, there's going to be plenty of rain to water the grass next time. Local hot report. Check. I'm, I'm okay with it. Are you okay with it? I think it, everything seems okay. Hopefully your hives are holding up and doing well too. For closing comments, I just want to reminisce a little bit about the EAS experience. I just can't tell you what a blast we had. The first thing I want to talk about is I'm used to going places where beekeepers gather and have somebody tap me on the shoulder here and there and say they like the show or have heard it or seen some of the videos. I almost couldn't step around any doorway, any hallway, go standing in line to get breakfast, you know, sitting at a table and someone come over and sit next to me. Almost universally, half the people I ran into say they listened to the show. I was shocked. I have never been in such an environment, saturation of people that knew about the show and listened and or have seen the videos. The good news is, and thankfully, and, and by the way, Bob had the same experience, Bob Gloss, my partner in crime. Uh, a lot of people had complimentary things to say. And almost universally, one of the impressions was just thank you for the effort. And that means a lot to me because I think you can imagine if you had to sit down and postulate what it takes to do this and to do it for as long as we've been doing it. Um, it's a lot of work. I, I only wish I could do more. But life gets in the way, and I'm okay. I've come to live with what I do and don't get to produce. You know, there's something that's funny about... Uh, I'll share a Kevin moment with you. Over here to the side is a GoPro camera. On Sunday, when I went out to work the bees, I wore this headset over my veil that had the GoPro mounted on it. And I filmed the entire monitoring the colonies thing that I just spoke about in the local hive report. The bad news is the camera didn't catch any of it. <laughs> I tried to, you know, you're working by yourself and you set the camera up and you tilt it down and you're thinking, well, that should be the right angle to see the frames you're holding out in front of yourself. You couldn't see any of it. If I had to share with you all the recordings that I make about different things that I never ever produce, I have tons and tons of, Bob and I have conversations and unfortunately some of them don't like the one we did. We recorded for an hour and something on the ride home, but the sound is so bad that I, I can't put it out. There's tons of that that goes on and, you know, maybe someday I'll figure out how to do better at all of that. But 
it's not for want of trying. That's the, the takeaway here. I'm constantly trying to produce content for the show, and a lot of it gets put to the wayside for various reasons. The effort is uh, far beyond even what it takes just to produce what you heard, is the, is the sense. But, you know, thanks. Thanks for saying hi to everyone, genuinely. I, I got such a nice card. I won't embarrass people. Um, about some of the things they shared with me personally, but you just don't know how much that means, uh, that, that people said hello and said things. I, I will tell a story that we were eating dinner at the banquet, and one of the persons sitting with me, whom I don't know, uh, just was sitting at the table when we sat down. I mean, I know who the person is. Again, I, I won't go into detail, but somewhere in the middle of dinner, everybody had gone up to go get something and do whatever, and he and I were sitting there, and he said, you know, and just out of the blue, sometimes when I'm in the workshop building stuff or whatever, I put your podcast on, and I listen to you guys. Bob and I were sitting at the table, and I thought, wow, this is just a, a crazy idea that I've been sitting with this guy all night long, had no idea that he listened to the show, knew who I was, and he stopped and took a moment to say thanks for the show and uh, the work and things he said he appreciated the diversity of topics that we covered and stuff. That, that's just cool. That's damn cool. I'm going to take a moment for myself and say, that's kind of damn cool. <laughs> and I appreciate that, you know. It's part of what you do this for. So, thanks. Thanks for everybody who stopped and said hello. Um, I have to say to the EAS committee, you guys killed it. And what I mean is the Eastern Apiculture Society Board and I don't believe that people know the commitment that they have. They volunteer their whole time. They're up there early. They don't get to see the show. They're up till two in the morning, making sure all the logistics are taken care of for the next day. And, and they're doing things at six in the morning with four hours sleep. There were twists and turns and curves and going on the entire week. And while they suffered greatly having to deal with all of the challenges that come from running a conference of that magnitude, people's impressions of the complex, which a lot of, I have to say this, a lot of the problems that came were simple. Put up a sign, give us directions, whatever. The college wouldn't let them. The inside baseball thing is many of the things that they knew should have been done to alleviate some of the few challenges that did occur, like day one, people had problems finding places until they got acclimated as to where the sessions were and such. Ideally, you would have just put signs up and say, go here or had people posted. Unfortunately, that was out of their control. So walk a mile in their shoes. And in the end, the spectacular content and people enjoyed the show, the, the outreach things that we did. I'll talk about all this. I'm going to cover EAS extensively in the next couple episodes. I'll just keep bringing different little tidbits, as I've said a little earlier, but hats off to the EAS crew. I, I developed more of an appreciation for what they do with the master beekeeper test and all the other things going on. It's, it's crazy. Um, what a great program. Looking forward to next year in Amherst and... 
I guess I'll end the show with congratulations to the Master Beekeepers. Small group this year, five of them. The Maryland contingent had it on lock. Those guys are really doing great for the state and for their team. And a couple of them made it through. Congrats to Russ um, Sprangle, one of our listeners, passed all four on the first shot. What a great accomplishment on a hard year because, again, only five people of all the people passed. Uh, the tests were hard this year. I'd probably go down as one of the harder years, and to get through, that's even more of an accomplishment. Uh, Valerie, great job. And to the others, um, yeah, you earned it this year. And, you know, it's always that kind of, I, I can't express to you how to connect on that when you're a master beekeeper and see the way these people get through. Um, there's a sense of pride that they, that they made all that commitment and actually achieved the objective. You, you can't help but be happy for them. So good, good on them for that. Uh, last thing to be said, I had two talks at EAS, both of them went fine. I talked about non-Langstroth hives, one of my presentations, and I was asked to present rigs and jigs, which locally around here we call the Gadget Garage. Uh, both of the presentations went off without a hitch. Seemed like uh, good audience participation, which is always a bonus. I will share a moment of the rigs and jigs. Just prior to the start, who walks in the door but Michael Palmer? Now, I don't say I know Michael Palmer, but, you know, all week long when we went out in the evening Yahtzee activities, if, if you don't know EAS, you won't understand that. But a lot of times the people who participate in the conferences come and congregate in the evenings. Michael Palmer sat shoulder to shoulder with me on, on the couch on multiple occasions. And, you know, I talked to him all week long. But to have him show up to your session and wonder why a commercial guy would give a, a hoot about what you're talking about for gadgets. Not only did he sit in the presentation, but he leaned forward, offered comments, and shared a gadget at the end, which was like a proud papa moment for me. <laughs> that, you know, all the people were like, wow, that was cool. Michael actually participated in the session. I, I don't know whether he understands the gravitas of that, but... I did. I appreciated it. Um, it was kind of neat to tell him that the device that he talked about, Bob Kloss built one and we used it. He had a smile on his face when we told him that in the hallway after the conversation. Uh, what a neat guy, Michael Palmer. Just to, if you get to spend any appreciable time with him, you, you get to see how that guy ticks. And uh, just a really neat down to earth candor to him. Um, there's times you meet people and you go, well, okay. And there's times you meet people and go, I, I like that guy. I would spend time with that person. Yeah. Michael Palmer, cool dude. So EAS uh, 2022, spectacular program. And I'm really, as you can tell, jazzed about talking about all the things that we learned. And I promise when I come back from vacation, I'll slide behind the microphone and start doling out a couple of these things. I think you're really going to like them. Uh, yeah, presentations went well. Bob Kloss's presentations went well. There's a story that I'll tell about Bob and it, and his almost near miss on that. And 
If you need presentations for your club association, somebody asked me in the hallway, and this is the reason I'm saying that. They're like, do you do this? Yeah, sure. I could do a Zoom presentation. I could come out. We went to Omaha, been to Maryland, I've been to other places. People seem surprised, but after they see my presentations, they're like, do you have any other ones? Yeah, I have a whole bunch of them. If you ever need a speaker for something and you're in a pinch, give me a call. I could do it quickly. Or I can actually build presentations on whatever topic if you have something that you want to, uh, within reason, of course. Um, but sure, give me a call. Kevin at bkcorner.org. I'm happy to do that. The last thing I'll say is we're going to Bristol Motor Speedway. And last year I went out to Omaha and Mike Roble, one of the uh, persons out there who actually was our chaperone while we were out at the program is coming to Bristol with me. <laughs> he said, I always wanted to go to a NASCAR race. If you're going to one, sign me up. And my, my brothers and a friend and Mike are going to Bristol in September, bringing a beekeeper from Omaha. How cool is that? Like, yeah, I'm down with that. Uh, hanging out with beekeeper peeps. Yeah, Mike, looking forward to that. If you're listening to the show, I hope you're as jazzed about this as we are. It's going to be an astonishing race. All right, enough of that. I feel like uh, the freeform ramble has run its course. Just nice to, to get a chance to sit behind the microphone. Now all I got to do is get up at the crack of dawn and produce this and put it out before we got to leave. And I'm sure I can figure that out given it's one o'clock in the morning and I get about five hours ahead of me. Like our beloved bees, when beekeepers go together, we can accomplish great things. Thanks, everybody, for listening. I'll catch you next time when we slide behind the Beekeeper's Corner podcast desk. Take care. <laughs>